to the bayous of Louisiana, broadcasting online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. Today, we are talking about the unlikely history of interracial unionism in Alabama's coal mines over the last century. We are also going to be breaking down the latest in the child labor legislation in the state of Alabama, taking a look at the South Carolina governor's attacks on unions and labor's response, as well as bringing you what we do every week, last week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number, uh, 844-899-TVLR is that number. You can call and uh, contribute to the program while we are on the air, or you can leave us a voicemail and we might answer it on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us anywhere you find anything online. If you want to get Boss Watch and Last Week in Southern Labor as a newsletter, then you can sign up on our website, tvlr.fm. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to make a one-time or recurring monthly contribution, you can go to tvlr.fm slash donate or patreon.com slash The Valley Labor Report. We also have a merch store at tvlr.fm slash store where we have a few shirts left over. You're going to want to get those before they run out. We only have like six or seven left. And our hats, folks. Pre-orders for the TVLR logo cap are back up. If you uh, make a pre-order in the next two weeks, in the next two weeks, we can guarantee you a hat by the middle of April. Uh, and if you're going to be at the Labor Notes Conference, we can bring it to you there. That's why we wanted to uh, do the pre-orders right now. We wanted to have some more logo caps for Labor Notes so that we can sell our wares over there. So again, tvlr.fm slash store if you want to buy our logo caps. $35 plus shipping. Um, and if you're a member of a union, please do think about getting your local to sponsor the show. We could not do this without the support of our union sponsors. Yeah, that's right. We really, really appreciate them and, and all the support that we've received. Uh, some, including like iron workers, have been uh, supporters of this program from the very beginning. And we really appreciate that. 
Uh, let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries, Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, WMMT, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. And I uh, just wanted to point out a couple of things since we have some new listeners today, I know. And, uh, you know, we are not media professionals, if you haven't figured that out yet. Just some diehard union brothers who really believe that we, we need to put Alabama and the South's labor movement on the map. Working class people d deserve a bigger platform. Hoping this project can make a difference on that front. So we really appreciate everyone who tunes in, whether you're a loyal fan coming back to us or you're a first time listener. You know, appreciate that. Appreciate your time. Uh, we air live on WVNN, which is the right wing talk radio station in Huntsville, Athens, uh, every Saturday from 930 to 11 with our overtime after 11 airing online on YouTube and Facebook and now on WMMT as well. We got our start on WVNN, which is also the birthplace of Sean Hannity and home to all sorts of reactionary propaganda that we find personally objectionable. But we do think it's important to get a different perspective out there to multiple audiences. We're happy that a portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, which is a historic black radio station in northwest Alabama. And of course, on WHIV, a community radio station in New Orleans. And as I mentioned, newly on WMMT up in Whitesburg, Kentucky. The full episode comes out on Spotify, Apple, your various podcasting apps. Definitely subscribe to us on your app of choice. Give us a good review. And throughout the week, clips of the show are released as standalone videos on YouTube and sometimes TikTok as well. So if there's a specific segment or interview that you want to find, we do try to make that easy for you. Just do us a favor, hit subscribe, hit like. All of our content is free. So special thanks to all of you who donate. All of you who comment and call in and all of you who like us, share us, review us, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Uh, that engagement on social media and the various apps really does help. It helps get the word out. It helps boost the audience. And it's really a, an easy, free way to support the program, even if you don't have any change uh, to contribute. But if you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for Southern working class folks definitely consider supporting us however you can. Uh, and if you can't contribute financially, please do share with your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, anybody you know who might be interested in what we have to say and what we talk about on this program and the amazing guests that we have every week. Uh, we know there's a lot of good causes to support. We know y'all are working class folks with limited incomes. So those of you who do contribute to the project, it really does mean a lot to us. We appreciate it. We've got a lot of good stuff planned. Can't do it without you. Yeah, that's right. And we really do have some uh, some amazing guests. I mean, where else are you going to hear an interview about uh, black and white coal miners organizing together in the 1880s Alabama? I mean, there's right. not, a, not a whole lot of places for that conversation to happen. So yeah. we're really happy to have it here. Later this morning to talk with someone from the Department of Professional Employees about white collar unionization, right? Yep. And and why unions are good for white-collar office workers. Uh, again, you know, not a conversation you're going to hear in Alabama's media. Yeah. 
Uh, so let's go ahead and get to last week in Southern labor. Here is what workers in the U.S. South and the American colonies were up to from February 16th to the 23rd. In new union campaigns, a supermajority of journalists at the San Antonio Express News are requesting voluntary recognition for their unionization with the San Antonio News Guild. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 17 workers at Packer Transport in Clinton, Tennessee, filed a petition to hold a union election with probably the Teamsters, since the employees are school bus drivers and the Teamsters have been on a roll organizing those types of workers, but the NLRB in this filing doesn't say. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the Washington Baltimore News Guild, CWA Local 32035, as the union representing the seven workers at the Daily Progress in Charlottesville, Virginia. Four workers at the Cesar Chavez Foundation in Austin, Texas, filed a petition to hold a union election with Lone Star Labor Education. Six workers at Wells Fargo in Apopka, Florida, filed for a union election with the Communication Workers of America, CWA. Three workers at Marty Kinsilla Collision Center in Florescent, Missouri, filed a petition to hold a union election with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAMAW. Workers at 21 different Starbucks locations filed a petition to hold a union election in the largest single day uh, for petition filings since the campaign kicked off a few years ago, including at the following locations in the South. Two in Denton, Texas, uh, although one of those was later withdrawn, Christiansburg, Virginia, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Sulphur, Louisiana. 13 workers at Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, filed a petition to hold a union election with the United Auto Workers, UAW, Local 3230. 17 workers at Pro Solar Systems in Christiansted, Virgin Islands, filed a petition to hold a union election with the United Steel Workers, USW, Local 8526. The employer filed a petition to hold a union election after a majority of the two workers at TV Oil and Gas in Winfield, West Virginia, demonstrated support for unionization with USW Local 62804. The employer filed a petition to hold a union election after a majority of the five workers at oil at Union Oil and Gas in Winfield, West Virginia, also demonstrated support for unionization with USW Local 62804. In campaign updates, ahead of its March shareholder meeting, the AFL-CIO's Strategic Organizing Center built a presentation for shareholders arguing that Starbucks' response to the union efforts have hurt shareholder value. They further argue in favor of replacing three board members with more worker-friendly candidates. As the union campaign at Delta rolls on, 145 members of Congress wrote a letter demanding neutrality from the company with the notable absence of any Georgia official. Georgia congressperson and member of the Congressional Labor Caucus, Hank Johnson, has said he is, quote, neutral on the campaign because he is friend of both Delta and the unions. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As the UAW is continuing their historic campaign to organize non-union Southern and electric car manufacturing workers, they announced a commitment to spend $40 million over the next two years on the campaign. The UAW also announced a new solidarity project to support organizing efforts and build solidarity with workers in Mexico. 
In election results, two workers at Consolidated Nuclear Security in Amarillo, Texas, withdrew their petition for a union election with the Metal Trades Council of Amarillo Local 306, an IAM and OPEIU affiliate. 47 workers at the Texas Tribune withdrew their petition to hold a union election after winning voluntary recognition of their unionization with the News Guild. 99 workers at Monongolia Emergency Medical Services in Morgantown, West Virginia, voted 49 to 23 in favor of unionization with the International Association of EMTs and Paramedics, IAEP, an SEIU affiliate. Four workers at Lee County Electric Cooperative in North Fort Myers, Florida, voted 3-1 to one in favor of unionization with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW Local 1933. Eleven workers at Coquí del Mar in Ajuntes, Puerto Rico, voted 6-5 to five in favor of unionization with the Coquí del Mar Workers Union. Sixteen workers at West Virginia University Hospitals in Morgantown, West Virginia, voted 10-6 to six in favor of unionization with the Laborers International Union of North America, Lyuna, Local 814. In strikes and bargaining updates, a recent decision by the International Trade Commission to not impose tariffs on 10 has some Steelworkers members in West Virginia concerned about the future of their jobs after Cleveland Cliffs announced they would shutter a 10 manufacturing plant in West Virginia indefinitely. USW Local 2911 President Mark Glyptus said he will be fighting to get solutions from D.C. for his 1,000 members that are affected. Housekeepers at the University of North Carolina are calling on the university to end paid parking for workers. Hundreds of ATU Local 689 workers are on strike against Fairfax Connector in Virginia. Management of WAMU, American University Radio, and NPR affiliate station announced their intent to lay off 15 workers and News Guild members, as well as shut down the DCist, a newsletter run by the station. The president of the News Guild encouraged the general manager of the station to reverse course or resign. UAW Local 862 and Ford avoided a strike last week after Ford addressed the concerns of the workers at the Kentucky truck plant surrounding safety. The NBA's Washington Wizards and the NHL's Washington Capitals were proposing moves from D.C. to Northern Virginia, but are facing opposition from unions in Northern Virginia, with Virginia Diamond, Northern Virginia AFL-CIO president, saying, quote, there's been no interest at all on the part of this developer to consider signing agreements that would protect the rights of workers. In politics and legislation, a bill that would allow 14- and 15-year-old Alabama children who are failing school to get jobs without authorization from the school or their parents made it out of a Senate committee last week without Democratic opposition. In West Virginia, a similar bill passed the House of Delegates. New legislation proposed in Florida to build on the anti-union bill that passed last year has made it out of a House committee. The bill could make it easier to decertify some public sector bargaining units while also granting more or exemptions to others. A joint venture to build a battery manufacturing plant between Ford and South uh, Korean manufacturer SK in Kentucky is facing struggles as workers report mold sickness and grueling hours. Tennessee Senate Democrats proposed and Tennessee Senate Republicans rejected legislation that would cap insulin at $35 a month, import drugs from Canada, provide medical relief for Tennessee, medical debt relief for Tennesseans, and exclude medical bills from credit reports. 
Kentucky Teamsters are advocating against a state house bill that would legalize driverless trucks in Kentucky with little to no oversight. CWA is supporting legislation that would increase penalties for assaulting a utility worker in Georgia, and the Teamsters donated $45,000 to the Republican National Committee in January, days before Sean O'Brien's meeting with Trump, newly public records have confirmed. We are going to go ahead and head to a break. We're going to be right back with Dan Letwin talking about the history of interracial unionism in Alabama's coal mines. Stay tuned. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit coveralabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. 
With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Vote! This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. I have with me Adam Keller. Um, and uh, if you are just tuning in, you can check out the stream for anything that you missed on YouTube or Facebook. You can also find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. 844-899-TVLR is the phone number if you'd like to call into the show or leave a voicemail after we're off the air. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Like the stream if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Um, we are uh, talking to uh, Dan Letwin. Have we got him on the line? We uh, do. Fantastic. So Daniel Letwin is the uh, an associate professor of history at Penn State University, where he specializes in labor, race relations, and the American South. He is author of The Challenge of Interracial Unionism, Alabama Coal Miners from 1878 to 1921. He's also our next guest. Dan, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Uh, I we have a, do you hear an echo? Yeah, I hear an echo. Is that, where is that coming from? I wonder, Adam. Let's see if I can uh, tweak that real quick. Hmm. So um, while we're trying to figure that out, uh, I will tell, I'll give everybody kind of a preview of, of this book. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty kind of obvious what's going on here. The challenge of interracial unionism, Alabama coal miners. But the really interesting thing is that the, uh, coal mines in Alabama and the organization of coal miners in Alabama has always been interracial. There has never been, um, you know, for, during this period, a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, you know, you do not think about, um, black and white workers coming together and organizing across race lines. Uh, and that's exactly what was happening in Alabama. I mean, really at the depth of Jim Crow, uh, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, Letwin takes pains to, uh, mention and, and kind of illustrate is that while 
Alabama was rewriting our Constitution in 1901, you know, the, the really uh, revanchist and, uh, you know, racist, explicitly white supremacist Alabama Constitution that was written in 1901 by the Redeemers after they came in, in, into power after the end of Reconstruction. While that was happening, <laughs> coal miners in Alabama with the United Mine Workers were organizing interracially, black and white, Coal miners together. I mean, you know, just really a fantastic uh, and and amazing history. You know, not something that you would you would imagine uh, going on uh, in a place like Alabama at a time like you know 1901. Um, have we got the echo figured out? Let's try. Let's hear. Uh, hello. Yes, yes, I think we're fine. You hear me? I do. I do. Thanks. Awesome. Appreciate your patience. Yeah, it is. It is an amazing story uh, that. Uh, uh, it, it goes against what we would expect uh, in uh, the deep south, the new south of uh, of uh, the late 19th and early 20th uh, century. Uh, it's an interesting. It, it's interesting enough that uh, any any union found uh, such momentum and power in the uh, in the uh, in a, a bastion of anti-unionism like uh like like alabama but particularly uh fascinating i thought was uh the fact that at the height as you say the height or the depths of of jim crow uh you have uh a uh, a labor organization that's that that submerges uh the the color line to the extent that uh uh, 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 uh Organizations like the Knights of Labor and uh, eventually, and especially the United Mine Workers, managed to do. Right, right. And so, you know, b before we dive too much deeper into that, why this topic? What What is it that you, you know, not somebody from Alabama, right? I, you know, you, you didn't grow up in Pennsylvania, I don't think. You, you, uh, if I remember right, you told me that you, you grew up elsewhere, but it was in Alabama. Uh, so what was it about? this story that you know how did you find out about it and then once you found out about it what what was it that, that made you want to write a book yeah well i'm not i'm not from uh alabama in fact i'm from los angeles that does not have a lot of uh coal mines uh but i guess i came out of a uh of a family with a tradition of connection to uh uh to the labor movement and to uh struggles for uh uh, uh, racial, racial, racial justice. And so uh, I think I first heard about an interracial union, uh, or an interracial labor movement in the coal fields of Alabama, uh, a brief reference in the classic work by C. Van Woodward, The Origins of the New South, mm. who mentioned in a paragraph or two, as I recall, that uh, even as uh, the uh, kind of the ruling classes of of the New South, the great plantation owners, the industrialist financial interests, and the you know, kind of bourbon Democrats that that ran things. Even while they were consolidating their power, there were around the South certain pockets of uh, interracial uh, 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 labor mobilization. Well, in part, also the populists had a, an mm. interracial uh, dimension. But from the uh, uh, dock workers of New Orleans, uh, timber workers in uh, Louisiana and, and uh, East Texas, and not least uh, the coal fields of Alabama, you had um, 
these these uh, traditions of organizing among black and white workers collectively. And I guess I thought I wanted to know more about that. I, I wanted to uh, to to understand how um, uh, an enterprise like like the uh, like the United Mine Workers managed as well as it did, and there were great mm. limits in what it, was, what it was able to accomplish, how it managed uh, uh, in a Jim Crow region to organize uh, uh, a, a union comprised almost equally as the labor, as the, as the coal fields were themselves comprised almost equally of uh, black and white, white miners. Uh, and and how, how did they, um, uh, how did they uh, contest and and kind of uh, negotiate the pressures brought by segregation, uh, disfranchisement, and just kind of the racial, uh, you know, hostility and separation that permeate, permeated uh, their world. And and so you know the like you said, I mean that's something that that I think for a, for a lot of people, even potentially folks that that are not as interested and um you, you know in this kind of stuff like we are, you know, of course that you know we're union members from Alabama, we're kind of ideological about the thing. You're kind of ideological about the thing, but I think you know even normal people, right? You know, <laughs> I think even normal people, this is kind of a an interesting story. Uh, and and so let's let's talk about that. The the give us what is your overall you know give us the broad strokes of the alabama coal miners um and and their their various organizations actually you know it was primarily the united mine workers uh but there were uh, uh, precursors to that in the greenback labor party and the knights of labor um broad strokes the alabama mine workers um and, and and their you know adventures in interracial unionism uh during this this time period and uh, just a reminder we're talking to daniel letwin uh, associate professor of history at penn state the author of uh, alabama coal miners the challenge of interracial unionism yeah uh well a, a bit of background uh birmingham does not exist uh, until after the Civil War, uh, mm. and, and so uh, it, it's founded in the it, it's established in a old cornfield in uh, 1871, uh, and it's called Birmingham by the kind of the planners of it because there's a, a sense that the, now the time is ripe to develop the coal and iron deposits and perhaps build a, a coal, iron, and steel rival to Pittsburgh uh, in the South. It never attains that status. But uh, especially after the, uh, starting in the late late 1870s, you have uh, uh, the rise of the coal uh, of coal mining in uh, in the district surrounding uh, Birmingham, uh, and uh, coming to the coal fields to work uh, are white miners largely out of coal fields to the north some from from uh, britain other coal fields uh some coming off of uh of uh, more local rural areas and many black uh, uh african americans again largely coming out of uh, the agricultural districts of alabama and 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 elsewhere and so one thing that means is that from the very outset Approximately half the miners uh, in in the coal fields in the 1870s and growing into the 1880s and beyond, approximately half are white and half are black. 
they uh what that means is that uh unlike in some other industries where where uh african americans enter the labor force as intruders on a white terrain as white workers see it uh there never is the coal fields of alabama never are a white terrain it's always for various reasons mixed from the beginning and what that means is that uh as workers in the era of the greenbackers and then the knights of labor and the uh the turbulent period of the 80s and then into the 1890s and beyond if you're going to organize uh uh a challenge to the exploitations and the dictatorial practices of of the coal operators you have a choice to make are you going to organize um uh, only uh with the, you know uh are whites going to only organize uh, as white miners and exclude African-Americans uh, or not? Uh, are African-Americans going to throw in their lot with white miners or are they going to steer clear? And uh, there were, of course, some miners who may have felt that way. But the prevailing sentiment was that the only way that uh, that uh, uh, miners could effectively challenge the operators was to organize across the color line. So in part, it was a very pragmatic uh, right. decision. And we want to be careful not to romanticize. Uh, mm. To say that black and white miners organize collectively is not to say that the Knights of Labor or the, the UMW was conceived as a civil rights organization. Mm. And, or, or the, and certainly not to say that it was... Uh, 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 uninfected by racial, uh, by white supremacist uh, uh, feelings uh, among the white miners. There's plenty of racism, of course, in, in the coal fields. Uh, uh, but there was an understanding uh, that, uh, you know, white miners didn't have the power. They didn't have the ability, as white workers sometimes did in other industries, to kind of say, we decide who works here. They didn't have power mm. uh, over who got jobs they didn't have the power to exclude african-americans um and that is a part of the foundation for uh uh organizing collectively and you know you you said that in large part it was pragmatic you know and i think there there are some stories that that that, that you retell in, in your book that hint at at least some amount of real genuine uh you know progressive fellow feeling type of stuff between these black and white coal miners uh but but certainly there was there was an explicitly pragmatic element there um and 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 the reason for that is is that you know the conditions were were extremely difficult and and there was uh, there was need uh recognized by you know both the black and and white miners for something to change uh in the coal mines of Alabama can can you explain for us or or uh Talk to us about the conditions that, that miners faced in, in coal mines in Alabama around that time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the miners were arrayed against the miners was just a whole range of, of uh, often terrible uh, conditions. Uh, uh, when miners didn't have a union, uh, they were often expected to do what's called dead work. Hmm. So, for instance... Uh, part of dead work was to 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 secure the to secure the roof over the room. You know, this is this is kind of uh, pick and shovel 
you know, the days of pick and shovel uh, mining. Uh, miners would sometimes have to go into the woods before they came to work to find wood to prop up uh, the uh, the roofs. Uh, when you had a union, when you had a union contract, then the company would generally have to, have to do that. Uh, and miners wouldn't even be paid for the time they spent in what's called dead work, laying tracks into the rooms. They were routinely docked their pay arbitrarily, essentially what we now call wage theft, mm. uh, cheating at the uh, at the weighing at the point where the coal is 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 weighed. Long hours of labor, terrible terrible ventilation, uh, not to mention, of course, low pay, pressure to uh, to shop in, in, in the mining camps that were dominated by the company store, paid in script where you could only be redeemed at company stores that overcharged the miners. Um, I'm just beginning to get into the whole array of grievances, not to mention uh, uh, vulnerabilities to very low pay, uh, 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 unreliable access to work, Pressure mm -hmm. to have what was called subcontracting, which meant that uh, uh, miners would be expected to take on laborers and laborers in kind of subcontract, and they would have to pay the laborers. That violated a deep tradition of coal miners everywhere uh, around much of the world, uh, of mutuality, of the idea that uh, what, what the miners tended to want was to work on a buddy system. Right, where two miners work together, or perhaps the father trained uh, the, the 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 son, with a fair turn, everyone had an equal access to a coal car. Uh, uh, these traditions of interdependency that for our safety, and for our dignity, and for our autonomy, we need to work together, uh, and. Uh, and that's where um, uh, the um, the uh, it was often said that everyone at the end of the day everyone came out of the coal mines uh, black, you know, covered with coal dust, which physically is true, but also that was uh, it had a it had a symbolic uh, meaning that while the coal miners did not blacks and whites did not intermarry. They didn't live in the same neighborhoods. They didn't, you know, above ground. They didn't worship in the same churches. They lived mm. in this kind of segregated world. But underground, they needed each other. Uh, it was uh, there was a deep sentiment of 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 solidarity of that was right. that came out of shared experience, and. Uh, uh, and so that's why I think you're right, and I that it's not it wasn't just uh, pragmatic. It wasn't that white miners, for instance, are holding their noses and say, "Okay, we'll, we'll organize with blacks because we have no choice." Uh, you see evidence time and again, alongside the racism that existed as mm -hmm. well, of kind of a genuine sense of fellowship because we're uh, that, that comes from this common experience and identity of being coal miners. And, you know, just to expand on the dead work, you know, for folks who may not understand exactly what's, what's going on there, um, that a, a lot of that dead work was really, you know, a lot of it was tied to safety, 
right? And so if you are not being paid for this dead work, like securing the ceilings, making sure stuff doesn't fall, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and laying down tracks and all this stuff, and you're not getting paid for it, and then on top of that, you're being paid extremely low rates for the coal that you do mine, the incentive is obvious, right? You are going to be less keen on spending time ensuring your safety. And so, you know, the the, the numbers from the time, you know, they, they bear that out. The accidents were extremely common in the coal mines. Uh, deaths were yeah. not unheard of. And um, and deaths decreased whenever the, the workers, whether officially through a union contract or unofficially through, you know, exercising their power in some other way, uh, were able to get dead work either paid for or performed by company men uh, who were who were paid by the company uh, in a different way. You know, deaths decreased when, when things like that happened. Um, and so, you know, you were talking about the, the, the genuine, you know, solidarity and, 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 and fellow feelings, uh, between these folks. And, and one of the most explicit and I think really, uh, uh, beautiful instances of that was that the Birmingham Trades Council or Labor Council attempted that they decided that they eat, they w would not allow black union members in their hall or they would not accept black unions, something like that. Can you explain the situation and the, the United Mine Workers response to that? Yeah, uh, the, the Birmingham Labor Council, I believe it was called. Uh, this, I th this was in 1901 uh, that the Birmingham Labor Council just kind of issued a, a, its own decree that only uh, uh, black people would have access to their to, to the hall uh, where they worked, and the UMW uh, uh, said no. They they challenged them uh, and forced the, the Labor Council to back down. I mentioned it's 1901 because that's also the year where uh, the Alabama state constitution was amended to disfranchise African Americans. So that right. means it kind of it's the it's the coincidence. I think it's just weeks apart that this that this happened. Um, it's not to say, by the way, that uh, the UMW uh, over this period uh, kind of launched an unrestrained assault on on Jim Crow. In fact, there's a there was a there was a, a the the union throughout the 90s and and into the new century um, structured its interracial practices in a very careful way. So for mm. instance, District 20, the, 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 the Alabama district, then as now of the UMW, um, uh, the president, by a kind of an understood arrangement, the president would always be white. The vice president would be black, the secretary, secretary treasurer white, the executive council would be uh, kind of arranged, uh, kind of as a quota, uh, something like five white members, three black members. And uh, and these positions were kind of appointed, uh, you know, themselves by committees. So there's one time at a meeting uh, of the district where uh, I, I believe a black delegate said, why don't we change the way in which officials are selected? So it's not they're not selected by indirectly, kind of like the, con you know, the founding fathers did with the, with Congress in indirect election filters. Um, but that they'd be elected directly by the whole membership. And the uh, president, the white president said, we can't do that because that could mean 
that we'll have a black president. Mm. And if we have a black president, we're screwed. I mean, in, in, the, in right. this climate. And then a, a black leader, it might have been the vice president, sort of gets up and affirms that. He says, mm. no, we can't have you know, total popular election because we might wind up with a black president. Uh, right. It, it was, it's very poignant, but it, I think it reflects an understanding that in order to have breathing space, it's already a, a remarkable that uh, in this period, it was, that there was enough breathing space for a union that included blacks and whites in any way uh, that, that the, the fact that that could happen in this period was amazing, and but there's a sense we can't push things too far, right? Uh, uh, and uh, you know they were always at pains to say uh, we're not pushing, we're not pushing for social equality, mm-hmm. we're not pushing for uh, uh, the uh, we're not pushing for the right to vote for African Americans. Uh, now, in some measure, that it may have been because that might have been a bridge too far for many of the, of the white members. Uh, but I think also it was an understanding that, uh, you know, we are going to subject ourselves to such an onslaught of repression, of even heightened repression beyond what we already face uh, in the public uh, right. if we seen as a civil rights enterprise. Right. And the I mean, it, it really is amazing how, you know, I can just. I can just almost hear the conversations that are not recorded that these people are having amongst themselves outside of the meeting rooms or the thoughts that are going through their their minds as they're trying to walk this tightrope. Because, you know, at the same time, right, they, they can't allow black presidents, but they have a black vice president. And so the idea that in 1901, you're going to have a, a, a black person who is, you know, in effect and, and, you know, de facto and de jure over right? 90, you know, a bunch of all of the white rank and file members, you know, I mean, that in and of itself, right? That's, that's huge. And, uh, but, but then they're like, you know, we can't, we can't go too far, but then also having effectively a quota system to ensure that there are black, uh, minors on the executive council. Uh, you know, I mean, that is, uh, and then they, the routine denunciations of social equality. And then at the same time, some of those denunciations were really, you know, they were kind of they were wording things very carefully, right? Can I and 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 I just thought of that now, and I wish I had pulled the quote. I'm I'm not sure if you can rem- if if you can remember it off the top of your head, but I'm thinking of one where they wrote a letter in one of the labor newspapers. Um, you know, officially, you know, the thing that they wanted people to take away was they were denouncing social equality, but there were some hints at that, you know. You know, social equality, whatever you call it, it would, you know, if, if we're able to do, uh, you know, if we have, what was it, uh, uh, you know, good union wages, then, then you know, all of the good things of social equality would follow. Can Do you remember that, um, what the, the, uh, the article that I'm talking about? Uh, to be honest, it, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure I, I do exactly, but I, I mean, certainly what you're talking about, social equality was the kind of the big boogeyman, right? In mm. this whole era, right? It was the segre- it was the kind of the the, the the nuclear option rhetorically for the segregationists that right. say, uh, if you uh, are calling for equal pay, if you're calling for the right to vote, if you're calling for uh, interracial organization in the coal fields, that's going to be, 
the kind of the uh, uh, that's going to be opening wedge to this horrible thing called social equality, which was a vague term. But what it alluded to is the idea that the social barriers between whites and blacks will fall away. And if you dug deep enough, what you often got to was this this image of black men and white women and interracial mm. sex. And you'll right. just have amalgamation and the white race will dis will will disappear. And that was really potent rhetorical kind of dynamite. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, so the, the, the union, the union defenders of the union would say, look, we're not that's not what we're about. We're not for social equality. But also they tried to kind of diffuse it in a way and say, uh, well, um, uh, if so, if by social equality, you just mean blacks and whites are working together. What's wrong with with that? Um, uh, but uh, very careful to avoid mm -hmm. this kind of inflammatory, to deflect that inflammatory association. Mm -hmm. But it, but uh, there were limits to how effectively they could deflect it. So. Uh, one, there were a series of major strikes, kind of do or die strikes, uh, that each get a chapter really in this, in the more or less a chapter in this book. Uh, in 1894, there's a district wide strike uh, that uh, uh, is remarkable in the kind of the interracial solidarity that it uh, that it it shows, even when black strike breakers are brought in. Uh, uh, on a on mass to try mm -hmm. and break the strike, it helps break the strike, but it does not. Uh, uh, it, it does not undercut the cooperation among uh, black and white unionists. And the same thing happens in a a twenty six month strike that begins in nineteen o four. Another district wide strike in nineteen o eight, but by nineteen o eight. The kind of the rising tide of Jim Crow. Uh, I mean, it's it it's the the racial climate is more toxic than ever uh, as we get into the early years of the twentieth century, and uh, uh, when it looks like uh, the the Union might be able to withstand the onslaught in nineteen oh eight of federal troops, of mass evictions from company housing, of uh, Violence brought upon them uh, and and uh, legal repression by the by the state uh, looks like they're still holding out. The social equality charge is unveiled, and this hysteria is promulgated by the the pro company newspapers and uh, the governor of the state and the employers and uh, uh, middle actually middle class largely black opponents of the union. And they're all talking about how the what the, uh, what's going on in the tent colonies that miners have retreated to uh, when they were kicked out of their company housing because they mm. were on strike. What's going on in those tent colonies? Black right. men and white women in the same con and And that was, uh, you know, devastating. Uh, it provided, provided the basis for the governor eventually to send in troops and to, to, crush the, the tent colonies, mass arrests, uh, uh, you know, that, that kind of social equality charge and the race baiting uh, was incredibly effective at times mm. like this. It is really interesting how, how effective, you know, all of the, uh, all of the uh, forces that were arrayed against the unions were in actually, you know, defeating strikes 
And yet, even with the strikes defeated, they were not able to break, you know, the 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 bonds that had been forged between these black and white coal miners and 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 devolve their relationships into, you know, what uh, you know, what the powers that be at the time would have would have really liked to see, like some sort of race riot but in, within the union uh, between the black and white coal miners. Like, you know, there's just never any incident of, of that happening, it seems. Um, and, and and yet. The strikes were defeated. Um, and so at, at, at once, the story of the Alabama coal miners with, with the, the Greenbackers, with the Knights of Labor, and with the UMW is a really, you know, is heroic and inspirational and really cool to see. And then at, at the same time, just kind of because of the material realities of the, you know, of Alabama in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, you know, the miners were were ultimately defeated basically at each do or die strike. They were able to win some important concessions at, at various times. And, and maybe you can talk to us about those. Uh, but but, you know, they, they were ultimately, you know, defeated. Yeah, it's I mean, they were uh, up against formidable forces in this era. Uh, they did have certain the the, the miners uh, unions did have certain uh, cards to play. Uh, so, for instance, uh, they often got popular support on the issue of convict labor. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm so glad you brought yeah. that up. Uh, well, uh, from the outset of the, I mean, it's a classic kind of New South neo-slavery. Um, uh, you steal, a, especially, it was predominantly black uh, 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 African-Americans who were funneled into the convict labor system, although there were some whites as well. Uh, you steal a chicken, uh, you uh, you get drunk, and uh, uh, rather than just land up in jail for the night or two, you might be sentenced to uh, uh, to, to work in a convict as a convict uh, at a coal mine for three years. Uh, you can imagine this was uh, hideous conditions uh, for the uh, for for the convicts, uh, and this this by by the way continued in Alabama until the 1920s. Uh, but it was also one of the major grievances of the coal miners, uh, and in, in part, uh, that's because well, it was a degradation of their dignity as coal miners that they're forced to work, you know, along either alongside, but more often, you know, in mines next to mines where 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 convicts were deployed. Um, it undercut their own leverage, of course. It's one of the ways. It was one of the factors that was. On the uh, working for the operators, that when the miners went on strike, well, they could just ratchet up their or or, or uh, you know round up more convicts, and mm-hmm. that was uh, a, a, a very you know cooperate you know a, a very controllable form of of of, of scab labor, um, but the convict labor system was very unpopular, not just among the miners, but local farmers, shopkeepers, uh, many of the you know other workers in other industries. Middle classes, in part, it shocked the conscience of 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 many. Uh, so, always a major ish, issue uh, uh, in the uh, in this period was the call for the abolition of convict labor, and that garnered a lot of support. Uh, the other card I think that really worked for the miners was, I mean, it sounds rhetorical, but I think it's really true. Just the deep. The kind of the, the wellsprings of solidarity that just were rooted in common experience and common 
grievances, uh, and the, the fact that you know often these are skilled miners. They have they have a they have leverage that comes from their skill and experience and their uh, their impulses to organize collectively. But what they're up against, the ready access to uh, scabs or blacklegs, as as strikebreakers mm. were called, convict labor. It's the classic kind of Gilded Age, or you know, kind of, you know, the, 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 you know, back of the day of 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 uh, of this period. Uh, you know, the the, the deputy sheriffs uh, from county to uh, in the various counties, the state troops sent in, the courts prepared to enjoin labor activity. Of course, we know from Warrior Met, you know. Uh, some of these uh, might seem all too chillingly familiar, right. uh, but uh, uh, the you know the, the the financial powers, local government, the the what we now call the media, uh, the main main papers, uh, virulently uh, anti-union. That said, as you point out, there uh, there were moments uh, uh, where. Sometimes at local, you know, in a, not district wide, but at one company or another, workers could go on strike with real effect and and win. Uh, in the in the closing in the years immediately surrounding the turn of the century, so from around eighteen ninety eight to nineteen o three or so, uh, the major coal companies, uh, uh, some of them uh, connected with iron and steel, uh, were. Um, uh, w began to work with the union, uh, uh, with the UMW, uh, uh, negotiated contracts. And that was kind of reflecting a trend that was happening around uh, the country, a kind of a sense that maybe we can stabilize uh, labor relations uh, by uh, negotiating contracts. Uh, and while that was happening, uh, I wouldn't call it a golden age, but it was uh, mm. a moment where pay, uh, you know, the, the kind of pushing back on dead work, uh, uh, hours of labor uh, on a number of issues, uh, you know, and just simply the right to organize and have a kind of a mechanism for negotiating, you know, sorting out grievances and so forth. Uh, for a handful of years, uh, that became the new normal in the coal fields, but for various reasons, by around 1903 or 1904, again, reflecting a kind of a broader national trend, there was a uh, an open shop drive, uh, passing legislation that was uh, anti-boycott in, in, uh, in Alabama, and uh, the operators chose to uh, rid themselves of, uh, of, of the unions and uh, that combined with the fact that the racial atmosphere of the South and of Alabama were becoming more toxic than ever, uh, uh, meant that unionism would be crushed in 1908, and it wouldn't revive again until a decade later with the coming of World War One. Right, and and the um, you know, and and. and the the repression that the unions faced was not just you know that they brought in scabs or, or you know i mean people were actually you know murdered by the state and by company thugs and and it one of the things that i found most interesting it was you know certainly not the most repressive or or anything like that but 
ha- having grown up in a very evangelical uh, household and, um, you know, be listening co- to conservative radio, you know, I, I heard all the time uh, concerns about uh, the church being shut down by the government because um, they're, the preacher is not willing to, to do gay marriages, right? Um, and while that's never happened. <laughs> you know, that that's yet to happen. Uh, the g- state of Alabama actually shut down churches because they um, supported the striking coal miners, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. uh, in the early 1900s. Um, and, and so, you know, that I just, I thought that was, that was one, you know, something that stood out to me, uh, among all, all of the other stuff, you know, like I said, murders and, uh, and, and all this by, by the state and company thugs. As we wrap up, could you, you know, uh, I, I'm interested in how you see the connection uh, between the history of Alabama's coal miners and the state of labor in Alabama today. You know, you mentioned, you alluded to the Warrior Met strike uh, that that just ended. You know, I I, I think, uh, it, you know, in failure, I, I don't think it's controversial to say. Um, and, uh, you know, the the really valiant effort that they put up there. Um, the UAW campaign that is really going to be, you know, in, in many ways centered in Alabama, they're targeting non-union and electric car makers across the country, but, uh, Alabama has more than any other single state. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the propaganda that's going around, um, around the UAW campaign, um, at, you know, it reminded me a lot of, of some of the propaganda that was going around in a, in opposition to the UMW, UMW campaigns uh, in the early 1900s. So, so yeah, as, as we close out, I'm just interested in, in what you see as, as the, the connecting threads between uh, these two periods of, of Alabama history. Right. Well, I mean, to begin with, there's obviously, there's obviously differences uh, that warrior miners didn't have to think about convict labor uh, to undermine them. Uh, you didn't have uh, state troops with Gatling guns co- coming c- coming through. Uh, there's obvious differences, but uh, consider uh, there were times when the labor conflicts in in the late 19th, early 20th century would come when uh, miners, when the the union said, "Look, we made uh, concessions, we took wage cuts uh, when times were hard. Why are you reneging?" On your obligation to share the benefits when when times get better. Well, does that sound familiar mm. with uh, yeah. uh, with uh, Warrior Met? The uh, the violence uh, brought upon workers on the uh, on the picket lines, the habitual harassment, and at times, uh, you know, literal, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, really coarse and and uh, and and devastating violence uh, at Warrior Met. Uh, would be all too uh, would look all too familiar uh, to what workers encountered uh, in the in the coal fields 120, 130, 140 uh, uh, years ago. Um, uh, so uh, uh, I, the uh, uh, I think there was a, a, a resilience for some time at, uh, from what I understand it at Warrior Met of of the passion and solidarity uh, on uh, among the strikers, but I also know that that there was demoralization, and mm. uh, it's hard to sustain a a twenty one month uh, strike. Uh, whatever support may have come from the the organization, the national organization, it's very hard to uh, uh, to sustain. And uh, 
And I think uh, that would also be a grim reality that's uh, that's uh, uh, familiar, uh, would be familiar to veterans of the earlier struggles. Uh, but I think if one were to fall asleep in the early 20th century, a, a, a UMW activist from Alabama, and to wake up in uh, the early 2020s and see the warrior met uh, strike, there'd be, I think, a real uh, an affirmation mm. uh, you know, that uh, that the, that the spirit of unionism and and the uh, uh, the often uh, uh, you know t- terrible forces that they're up against they both remain uh, very alive today. Uh, professor Daniel Letwin, associate professor of history at Penn State, author of Alabama Coal Miners, eighteen seventy eight to nineteen twenty one: The Challenge of Interracial Unionism. Buy it. Uh, highly recommend it. You can go to uh, Red Emma's, a worker-owned bookstore online, and buy it there. Or Powell's, which is a union bookstore. And if you use the union's affiliate link, 7.5% of your purchase will go to their strike fund. So uh, you can buy it at either of those places. Uh, Daniel Letwin, really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, right. brother. Yeah, uh, really enjoyed that. Um always down to, to learn more about Alabama labor history. Uh, so that was great. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's really, I mean, there's, there was some other stuff that I wanted to get to, but we're running right. out of time. I right. just, it's crazy. I just, time flies by when you're talking to somebody like that. Um, so yeah, really appreciate his, uh, his book and, and his time. I would recommend folks folks check it out. I couldn't put it down when I was reading it. So uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break. We'll be right back with Boss Wash, and we are going to bring you the latest on the UAW campaign in Alabama. Stay tuned, folks. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans, and we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers, and we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior'd Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior'd Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior'd Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior'd Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior'd Law. The name with proven results. Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison uh, here with my co host Adam Keller. Uh, our pre orders are up for our logo cap, tblr.fm slash store. Um, what we want to do ideally is uh, purchase a run of a hundred. Um, but to be able to do that, um, we and, and to do that comfortably with the budget that we have, uh, we really need at least 30 pre orders to help us defray some of those costs. Um, otherwise, if we if we don't get that, then we may have to uh, order a smaller run. And uh, folks, hats are way more expensive than they were four years ago. Holy crap! It's crazy. We bought these hats like three or four years ago um, for, and we did a run of a hundred for like seventeen bucks a pop. Uh, and now, if we do a run of a hundred, it's twenty-five bucks a pop. On our end, right? So we're selling them for, we're trying to sell them for $35 um, uh, to make a, a little bit of money on those. But if we can only do 50, that's $30 a pop. So we'll be really not not bringing in, not raising a whole, a whole lot of money on these if we're not able to do a run of 100. So really want to try to get at least 30 pre-orders. You can find it online, tvlr.fm slash store. They're really good. They're dad caps. They've got a union bug on them. All of our merch is union. It's kind of shocking to me when I see like progressive and and left left leaning and socialist uh, programs and and projects uh, come out with merch and it's not union. It's like 
that's bonkers to me. I don't under, you know, it's kind of difficult for me to understand what's going on there. Uh, but we don't do that. All of our merch is 100% union made in the USA. You're not going to find on the back of your, uh, uh, you know, on your sh on your TVLR shirt or your TVLR cap made in Vietnam or Bangladesh. Um, not going to see that on any of our stuff. So tvlr.fm slash store to pre-order your logo cap. Uh, $35 plus shipping. Okay, so every week, bosses are killing people, bosses are stealing from their workers, bosses are misbehaving all the time, and uh, we want to uh, remind people of that, uh, because they're not going to hear it in other places, so let's do Boss Watch. Uh, in Virginia, the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division has recovered nearly $900,000 in back wages and damages after its investigation found a Norfolk home care employer denied 108 workers their hard-earned overtime pay. The division's investigation found that Advantage Home Care LLC and co-owners Dondra Nichols and Philip Simons failed to pay required overtime rates for all hours worked over 40 in a work week and did not maintain accurate records of hours worked. The employers paid $438,000 in back wages and an equal amount in liquidated damages for these violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. In Alabama, a federal investigation into an August 2023 horrific fatal incident at a Phoenix City sawmill revealed for the second time in three years that the employer could have prevented a tragedy by following required safety rules. The U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, responding to reports by first responders, found that a 67-year-old sawmill supervisor at MDLG Incorporated, operating as Phoenix Lumber Company, had climbed on top of an auger to access a difficult-to-reach area to unclog a wood chipper. Jesus. Because of the multiple failures by the employer to protect him, the machine started while the employee was on top of the auger. The 20-year employee was caught in the machinery and fatally injured. In response to the August 2023 fatal incident, OSHA cited Phoenix Lumber Company as well as its owners John Menza Dudley Jr. And, Elizabeth, and Leslie Elizabeth Dudley with 22 willful violations, one repeat violation, and five serious violations totaling 2.47 million dollars in proposed penalties. Specifically, the agency found the employer failed to ensure uh, employees used energy control procedures to prevent the unexpected startup of machines while performing maintenance and servicing activities such as clearing jams. Uh, they failed to ensure the use of lockout tagout devices on machinery when performing maintenance. They also failed to provide training to employees on the purpose and function of the energy control program, as well as ensure they have the knowledge and skills required for the safe application of energy control measures. They failed to maintain guarding on machines that posed amputation hazards to employees, and they failed to require fall protection to be used in areas above four feet. Uh, prior to these citations, Phoenix Lumber Company had been inspected four times in the last five years, including a, fat a fatality inspection in 2020 that resulted in the agency citing the company with four willful and, and ten serious violations. OSHA added the employer to the agency's Severe Violators Enforcement Program back in 2020 a program for employers who endanger workers by committing willful repeat or failure to abate violations that could lead to fatalities or catastrophic injuries. Employers remain on the list until they can demonstrate certain criteria and safety standards within a three-year time frame. 
In Tennessee, the U.S. Department of Labor today asked a federal court to issue a nationwide temporary restraining order and injunction against Fayette Janitorial Service, LLC, operating as Fayette Industrial, to stop the Tennessee-based company from illegally employing children while the department continues its investigations of the company's labor practices. Filed by the department's office of the solicitor in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Iowa, the request for a restraining order is prompted by investigation by the department's wage and hour division. Investigators discovered Fayette employed children to clean and sanitize spaces and equipment during overnight shifts to fulfill sanitation contracts at a Purdue Farms plant in Accomack, uh, Virginia, and at Seaboard Triumph Foods LLC in Sioux City, Iowa. The Fair Labor Standards Act bans children under the age of 18 from working in dangerous occupations, including most jobs in meat and poultry slaughtering, processing, rendering, and packing establishments. In its filing, the department alleges Fayette employed 15 children hired as young as 13 years old in Virginia and at least nine children in Iowa on its overnight sanitation shifts. Miners were used to clean dangerous kill floor equipment, such as head splitters, jaw pullers, meat bandsaws, and neck clippers. At least one 14-year-old at the Virginia facility suffered severe injuries while employed by Fayette. Uh, Fayette Janitorial Service LLC of Somerville, Tennessee, provides contract sanitation and cleaning services for meat and poultry processing facilities, including Purdue Farms and Seaboard Triumph Foods, in about 30 states and employs more than 600 workers. The Department of Labor's investigations into Fayette are ongoing. Absolutely deplorable, wicked behavior from this company. But uh, again, not looking at any criminal charges here. Despicable. Uh, had a few dishonorable mentions, wanted to make sure that we shared those with you, even though we don't have time to go into them deeply. Federal safety investigators learned that a 41-year-old maintenance technician at Aladine Columbus Foundry in Columbus, Georgia, endured severe injuries. Um, endured uh, severe injuries from an electrical transformer explosion and opened a second investigation. The company was cited for 22 serious and three other than serious violations, including failure to mandate electrical suits and insulated tools for a total of $182,000. The U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division recovered $97,000 in back wages and damages for 26 workers who were not paid overtime by Metroshka Deli in North Miami Beach, Florida. The U.S. Department of Labor's Wage Hour Division recovered $37,000 in back wages for 37 workers who were not paid overtime by EAS Homes in Charleston, South Carolina, and the USDOL's Wage and Hour Division recovered $52,000 in tips, back wages, and damages to more than 13 workers who had these wages stolen from them by Murrah Ichiban Restaurant and Nam Damoon Restaurant in Saipan, Marianas Islands. I had to look that up, the acronym. Uh, yes. When I saw that on yeah. the DOL. It's MP. Website. MP is the acronym for Marianas Islands, not intuitive. The U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration has, cite has cited an LMI finishing in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. $284,000 for exposing workers to nearly two dozen safety hazards following a complaint about a lax safety environment at the company's plant in Catoosa. Um, so yeah, there we go. Boss watch. Boss is bad. Uh, that's the moral of the story there. We're going to wrap up with this, uh, the latest on the UAW campaign in Alabama. We know that, uh, the 
workers at Mercedes in Vance uh, outside of Tuscaloosa are closing in on 50%. Um, they have already hit 30% cards signed. Cards signed meaning, uh, uh, you know, when I say cards, I'm, I'm meaning authorization cards. And so those are documents uh, either electronic or, uh, you know, in paper that employees sign stating that they authorize uh, the United Auto Workers to be their union. It's a, you know, it's a card that says, like, it, it's, it's not a card that says, I want a union election, right? That's not what an authorization card says. An authorization card says, I authorize the UAW or whatever union to be my union. This is who I want as my certified bargaining representative, right? That's what these cards say. And by the way, if you're an auto worker, go to uaw.org slash join to find out how to sign that card. Exactly, exactly. uaw.org slash join to sign one of them cards. Um, So in Mercedes, like I said, they've hit 30% cards signed, almost 50%. They've already hit 50% in Volkswagen in Tennessee. Um, But uh, the Mercedes executives are running scared about this, and so they are holding mandatory anti-union meetings. Uh, Michael Goebel, who oversees production, this is from Bloomberg. The title is Mercedes U.S. Executive Warned Against Unionizing at Mandatory Meeting, UAW says. This is in Bloomberg by Josh Idelson is the author. You can find it. Uh, good good work by Josh Idelson. He always does good work. So, okay. Uh, Michael Goebel, who oversees production in North America and is chief executive officer of Mercedes-Benz U.S. International, addressed employees Thursday at the company's factory in Vance, Alabama. Goebel suggested that unionization would, would mean work stoppages, costly dues, and obstacles to conflict resolution. Obstacles to conflict resolution. Absurd. According to an audio recording reviewed by Bloomberg News. Well, I mean... He's being honest. It is an obstacle to resolve their conflicts, yeah. right? In the way that it's an obstacle to resolve the conflicts in the way that they would prefer, which is that they get exactly their way and have to not listen to their employees. Right. It's yeah. kind of like the Bill of Rights is an exactly. obstacle for some police officers. That's true. That's true, actually. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> um. I don't believe the UAW can help us to be better, Goebel said. Mercedes-Benz said the meeting was a routine one where multiple business topics were co- topics were covered. Yeah, super routine for uh, the, uh, and a, a chief, the chief executive, executive officer to show up exactly. in Vance, Alabama. Right. Super, yeah, just totally routine. This happens all the time. He probably was just curious about Alabama spring football, was yeah. in the neighborhood, you yeah. know, wanted to see what's going on with the new coach. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm sure that's what it was. Uh, this uh, German, right? <laughs> a German guy, super interested in what's going on in Alabama, uh, the Alabama football. Yeah, totally. Um in addition, our CEO gave his opinion on the UAW's current campaign. You know, in addition to this totally standard, you know, meeting where other business topics were addressed and, you know, nothing, you know, totally normal thing. It just ha- and just over the course of the meeting, you know, he was like, while he was there, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give my opinion, give my opinion on the UAW campaign. A company pokes spokesperson Edward Taylor said in an email. In doing so, he emphasized that the decision on unionization is ultimately up to each individual team member and we must respect each other's opinions. Mercedes will continue to share facts and opinions through open and direct communications to support our team members in making an informed decision. Mercedes official principles include a section on union rights stating that the company and its executives shall remain neutral in the event of organization campaigns. It also says, quote, the trade unions and the company will ensure that employees can make an independent decision. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think of somebody staying neutral, 
Um, I do not think of somebody coming in and saying, quote, that their workers, quote, shouldn't have to pay union dues. I believe you shouldn't have to go through strikes, years of negotiation, or complicated processes to communicate and resolve conflicts. Uh, yeah. I don't think that that doesn't sound neutral to me, right? We actually heard earlier in the program Hank Johnson's version of neutrality in Georgia where you're just not going to say anything about a union campaign in your state, uh, even though you're a member of the Congressional Labor Caucus. Insane. Absolutely Looney Tunes. But, you know, I mean, look, at least that is on its face neutral, right? I mean, Hank Johnson is officially being neutral. Now, you know, I think that there's an argument that, you know, uh, uh, neutrality in the face of, you know, this kind of stuff is, is really, you know, support for the bosses. But nevertheless, his official position and his statements are neutral. He is not saying I'm neutral and then going to the Delta facilities and saying to the workers, uh, you know, I don't believe that you need a union. I don't believe that, you know, uh, you know, I don't believe you should have to pay union dues, right? That's not neutral. Obviously. That's anti. Anti. Obviously. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, so in Thursday's remarks to employees, Goebel said uh, workers, quote, shouldn't have to pay union dues that generate millions of dollars per year for an organization where you have no transparency where that money is used, according to the recording. So they just lying. Just uh, yeah, absolutely. Just lying um, because you have infinitely more transparency about how unions spend their money than you do corporations. Right. Obviously, unions. U.S. law, and, and Idelson, to, you know, to his credit, he's a good reporter, mentions in the very next paragraph, U.S. law requires uh, unions to disclose information about their budgets and spending. Right? And there is, like, <laughs> some democratic process to some extent, right? Exactly. That varies from union to union. Some is more democratic than others, et cetera, right. et cetera. But, like, bottom line, somebody's voting on it. Exactly. Somebody's voting on it that you have some indirect, uh, direct or indirect say over, and... Whatever is spent, you can find it, right? right? And some unions make it easier to find than others. But even if your union doesn't want you to find it, you can find it because it's on the Department of Labor's website, okay? Like, this thing is super transparent, way more transparent than, than companies. And, in fact, you know, at my, at my union meetings every single month, we have a treasurer's report where I see every single cent that comes into my union and every single cent that leaves my union. And then I get to vote on whether or not to accept this treasurer's report. I voted last month on 2024's budget. Every single cent allocated. I We debated about it. We discussed it. We heard explanations of why the executive board wanted to spend money in this area and that area. And then we as a union voted on it in a meeting that was open to all members, right? Way more transparency. You do not get that kind of transparency when you're talking about the money that Mercedes spends, uh, that Mercedes spends, the money that Mercedes gets because of the labor, because of the value that these workers create. Totally different worlds. I mean, just lying, like Adam said, just lying. Goebel also said it's important that we all respect different opinions and different viewpoints and to not let the team become divided. <laughs> Quote, being a high-performing team and family is not always easy. It takes everyone's opinions being respected and considered. Right. I mean, there's some people who are right and then there's yeah. some people who are wrong. But I guess we should respect <laughs> we, and consider all. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. 
We all know what management is doing, and this is, uh, again, from the article. We all know what management is doing. They are panicking about us winning our fair share and winning our union, Mercedes employee Jacob Ryan said in a statement from the UAW. The campaign has already caused the company to make improvements such as raising pay, uh, Ryan said. Quote, Mercedes clearly only listens when we organize, and we're going to keep at it until we win a better life and win our union. In addition to that, uh, reactions that the UAW shared with Bloomberg, we reached out to a Mercedes employee and uh, were sent um were sent reactions from other members and um and, and assessments from the workers about other workers opinions after this uh after this um meeting and so one worker said uh quote they know they're doing it because of the union and they still want it Speaking of the workers, the workers know that Mercedes is doing it because of the union and the workers still want the union. Uh, another person said of the workers, they're not buying it. Another person uh, saying of the company, uh, they want to control what we deserve instead of giving it. Um, a person said of the CEO, he's a laughing stock. <laughs> a, a person said of the CEO, it took him five years to realize he wasn't doing right. Um a uh, another person said of the uh, of the meeting that it was a glowing <coughs> endorsement of the union. <laughs> another right. person said people saying he tried to buy votes and a lot of uh, people saying that's not getting their uh, that's not getting their vote now. Uh, too much crawfishing and lies talking about the company. Uh, another person said, uh, I still want those UAW cards. So there we go. Uh, that's that's the meeting and the reaction from the. Uh, uh, from the employees, uh, good reactions there, and appreciate the employee, uh, uh, the UAW um, worker organizer, um, sharing those with us. So there we go. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to continue the show in the second half of the show, uh, where we're going to be going into overtime. Uh, we're talking to Katie Barrows uh, from the Department for Professional Employees at the AFL-CIO about uh, professional employee unionization. That's a, a topic close to our heart, obviously, as professional employees. Uh, we're also going to be talking about child labor and uh, South Carolina's governor. We weren't able to get to those in the main show. We're going to get to those in the second half of the show. And uh, we're going to be taking your calls, 844-899-TBLR, 844-899-8857. So we're going to go ahead and open those phones up and take your calls in the second half of the show. Um just a reminder, labornotes.org, uh, find stuff there, tvlr.fm slash store, pre-order our hat, uh, tvlr.fm slash donate, uh, give us money, um, and uh, yeah, we'll get to some, some other plugs in the second half of the show, um, and if you're not going to follow us over there on Facebook and YouTube, we will see you next week.